there's so many areas of research. And if you have a real strong interest, if you feel like you can do some good, maybe that's something that you could talk to people about. And maybe some community leader will say, oh, that's a really good idea. Great, we'd love to do that. But I think without getting consent from an individual or a, a tribal leader, or a community member, or a community leader, gosh, you know, it's just not appropriate to go in and do research on another group of people for your own intellectual curiosity. Welcome to another episode of Advocates in Action, a podcast created by the National Patient Advocate Foundation, a nonprofit that develops initiatives promoting equitable access to affordable quality health care through policy action and partnerships. I'm your host, Ashley Freeman, and this season of our podcast is brought to you in collaboration with Zero, the end of prostate cancer. We will build upon the Promoting Health Equity in Cancer Care virtual workshop hosted by the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, which was co-chaired by Gwen Darian of NPAF and Reggie Tucker-Seely of Zero. Katie, please tell us a little bit about yourself and who you are and your work. Thanks so much for having me. My name is Katie Cueva, and I was born on an island in southeast Alaska called Mount Edgecombe, which is now part of Sitka. Although my dad's family is from Tecolotlan, Jalisco, and Momac, Zacatecas, and my mom's family has been living in eastern Canada the last couple hundred years. And I was raised mostly in Anchorage, Alaska. I work at the University of Alaska Anchorage as an assistant professor of health policy. In your work in that position, what does that work entail? I am honored to work with lots of different community partners and organizations in order to address their needs. I end up doing a lot of evaluation work, a lot of what we call community-based participatory action research. So working with individuals and groups and organizations to really help address their questions in a way that doesn't just sit on a shelf, in a way where we create something that is helpful for the community or the, the individual or um, that organization that they can use that hopefully does some good, gets them closer to their goals. It's definitely work that is needed. Alaska is a huge landmass, but not a lot of people really understand the landscape and the dynamic and the demographics. Alaska is huge geographically. I don't know if you've seen those maps of Alaska superimposed on what we call the lower 48, mm -hmm. where it goes all the way from California <laughs> to Florida. Yeah. The way things look up here is really diverse, right? Like the north is an Arctic desert, where I was born is a rainforest. I live in Anchorage, which is the largest community in Alaska. It has about half the population of the state. I think we have about 450,000 people at this point. I'm not exactly sure on that. But where I live, there's an inlet out front, and then there's mountains behind the city. So it's incredibly picturesque. And because it's an inlet, you can look across the water and see mountains on the other side as well. We have some of the most diverse neighborhoods in the nation. There's refugee populations, immigrant populations, as well as kind of a transient professional community, and certainly the indigenous people of both Alaska and this region. I live on the Naina land, but there are communities from other Alaska Native groups from throughout the state that also have a presence here in Anchorage. Wow, and with the work that you do in public health in a place 
like Alaska that is so big but has a small amount of roads that connect those major cities in between. How does that really impact you? Anchorage is connected to a couple other communities and also you can drive. It's a long road trip, but you can drive down to the lower 48. You have to go through Canada or you can take a ferry down to Seattle. And there are some small communities on the road system as well as, you know, a few larger ones. But you're right, most communities in Alaska are not connected via roads to at least to Anchorage or to other urban centers. So it means that the only way to access them is via plane usually. In the winter, some of the major rivers become ice roads so people can drive on them to get to other communities. In the summer, those rivers become sort of marine highways where people can take boats up and down the rivers to get to different communities. Snow machines in the winter to get to different places. Not a lot of people use dog sleds anymore, but that would be another way to get between communities. And just that kind of resilience and independence that a lot of communities have, I think shapes the way that people live in those places and the kinds of questions they have for their community. It certainly shapes the way that kind of health is addressed. My background is in public health, so that's more of the framework with which I see things. I recently was a part of several COVID-19 projects these last couple years. And when we were talking to folks about how COVID-19 had kind of impacted their community and the policies that they had implemented and kind of guidance they had received federally or from the state or from their region, they talked a lot about that isolation, both as a way where they accessed kind of traditional medicines, traditional practices, kind of traditional spirituality, traditional ceremonies to be able to stay strong and when those things were absent because of social distancing, say about getting together for funerals, which wasn't something that they could do during the pandemic, just the sense of loss, because that wasn't something that they could practice and continue to, to be safe or to keep their families safe. In the absence of those traditional practices, was there the ability to resort to using technology to stay more together? Or is that a different challenge that is also proposed here in this area as well? Using technology, certainly there's potential that comes with that. A lot of folks have phones. Many people have smartphones, even in rural Alaska. But bandwidth is limited, internet access is limited, and where it is available, it can be quite expensive. And there's different carriers for different regions. So that made getting together virtually also a challenge. However, there is high-speed internet access in theory in most of the schools and also the clinics. So things like telemedicine mm -hmm. are used quite extensively in Alaska, or I've zoomed into schools when they're in session to be able to guest instruct or to answer questions. When folks are required or asked not to get together with other people, it can be very isolating and very lonely. One of the older pandemics, which is still talked about and is still in a living memory, the 1917-1918 Spanish flu epidemic. I've heard stories that in some communities people just posted an individual kind of at, the, at an entryway to the community and just didn't let anybody come in and that was the way that they kept their community safe. But that's also not really a possibility anymore in are very connected in modern times and people get medevaced out when there's a medical emergency and we wouldn't want to put a stop to that. Sometimes people come in, there's a mechanical issue and there's expertise in a different community and so that individual comes in to fix whatever was broken or needs maintenance. 
So really isolating a community and allowing everybody in that community to continue to socialize while restricting access to the outside world is just not so much of an option anymore. We're so connected, even in really small rural communities in Alaska. So what have you found are the public health needs of the communities that you serve and how do you really identify them and be able to address them? Yeah, well, I want to kind of circle back to something we touched on at the beginning, which is just the tremendous diversity that there is here in Alaska and, you know, everywhere. There's all sorts of different opinions and perspectives and beliefs and requests for what people have needs for, what people have questions about, what they want to have addressed. So I really try to take a bit of a back seat on a number of these things and feel like my role is to support. I have a skill set. I have a master's in public health from Johns Hopkins and dual doctoral degree from Harvard. I, I like to think that I know how to do a few things, but that, you know, that my skills are only there to support what a community or an organization or a group really wants to have done, to really be humble and make sure that I'm invited for a specific purpose and that there's a community advisory board or some other leadership structure that really is driving the work. Unless somebody says, okay, Katie, take this. We don't have the capacity, but we want this to happen. Can you make this happen? And then if I have the bandwidth and the time and you know the funding, certainly I'm happy to make that work. I try really hard not to go into a place that I'm not from, that is not my culture, and tell people what it is that we're going to do. Like, oh, I read this paper and this is what's gonna work. That's not my style. I feel like that approach also doesn't often work. It's not sustainable because the people in the community aren't requesting it. I love that you mentioned that because the word that came up to mind was trust and that you really built trust in the communities that you serve because you don't come in as the person who knows it all, but you come in with the lens of, of wanting to learn so that you can assist the community in achieving the goals that they have desired. I think that's an excellent way to put it. I also think that in this approach, I always have to be prepared to be told that my presence isn't needed or isn't wanted. And I think it's great when I'm taken out of the loop. The community is really able to address their own questions and to move forward, and it's not something where they need additional support. I think that's ideal. I'm thinking about this cancer education project that a colleague and I worked on, Jen Schmidt, in Northwest Arctic, where she had heard from individuals a lot of concerns about cancer and uh, she was telling me this story that you know, she had gone out to these communities and done moose harvest surveys, and she's a wildlife biologist, so was talking to people about subsistence foods, and people continued to tell her that they had concerns about cancer. And so we were sitting next to each other at this conference, but we didn't often talk about our work because she's a wildlife biologist and I'm in public health, but she was telling me the story, and I said, oh gosh, I've done some things about cancer, and she told me if she just knew somebody who could do something about cancer education, she would bring them back to these communities to help answer these questions. So I volunteered myself. We wrote a grant together and got some funding to go back to a few of these communities and held community meetings and went to the clinic, went to the school, talked to the teachers and the school staff, talked to the young people and tried to get a real sense of what communities might want, what questions they might have. and. And it was always a question at each of those meetings. If this isn't a priority, that's okay. Please let us know. And maybe there's other things that have come up. You know, maybe the concerns she heard were not from a representative chunk of the community. Who knows? But it's always an option for us to walk away. And I think that's really important. 
to be able to listen and not be so committed to a project that you're unable to hear what the community really wants. That was so great. Listen so that you can be able to hear. Historically, in Alaska, there have been some practices and policies that did a great damage to people that still have a lasting impact. So for people who aren't familiar with the history, can you tell us about those experiences and how they do affect the community's relationship with their healthcare providers? Maybe just to begin, the word research up here is often viewed as a dirty word. And I think in a lot of indigenous communities in the United States, that's true because there has been research done that was done without consent. I'm thinking about one study. There were individuals, perhaps from the U.S. government, that wanted to see what special characteristics Alaska Native people had to survive the cold. And so injected some substances into individuals. There was no one to translate. So I can't imagine that they had informed consent to be able to do that. It's also possible that there was an understanding that people had to participate in the study in order to continue to receive the services that they were getting from those government agencies. So really coercive. And I think that the conclusions of this study, if I remember right, were that, gosh, Alaska Native people are really good at wearing warm clothes. All of these assumptions that the individuals that began this study had about kind of innate biological differences between these social categories of race, right? So there's just that history of racism, that history of colonialism, and that continues. You know, it's not purely historical either. There's certainly ongoing racism, certainly ongoing colonialism that happens not just in Alaska, but that impacts most marginalized communities. Because I'm a researcher at an academic institution, and you know, for those folks who are listening who can't see my face, I'm pretty pale. I certainly present as part of the dominant culture, and my role certainly is as well. So being really mindful of that and making sure that I'm only in those spaces because I'm invited. There's always an option for me to leave that space if I'm not welcome. Everything you just mentioned is exactly why we chose to focus the season on identity and navigating the healthcare system. Because unfortunately, like you said, studies like that didn't only happen to Alaska Natives. It also happened to African-American people through the Tuskegee experiments and Henrietta Lacks and tons of other cases in marginalized populations as well that support the fact that if you have a certain identity, you don't have agency over your body. Those in power do. And that historical context and reality still to this day has a huge impact on the lives of people, which can frequently manifest as distrust for the system, which is rightfully so. Therefore, do you have any advice or tips to people who are researchers or providers who maybe have a harder time understanding their roles and responsibilities in a community and how to respectfully build that trust? Sure. I think step one is to listen, right? And maybe step two, or, or maybe it's in parallel with that, step one is to, to think about what your own motivations are. Why are you here? Why is it that you want to do this? You know, I not infrequently get emails or have sit down for cups of tea with people that have a real strong interest in Alaska with researching Alaska Native people and 
haven't been in Alaska or don't have any connections with people who identify as Alaska Native. And I think that's one of my first questions is, well, what is it that brings you there? What are your own motivations? If this is purely an academic interest, that's not enough. It has to be because you've been invited. You've been asked. There's so many areas of research. And if you have a real strong interest, if you feel like you can do some good, maybe that's something that you could talk to people about. And maybe some community leader will say, oh, that's a really good idea. Great. We'd love to do that. But I think without getting consent from an individual or a a tribal leader or a community member or a community leader, gosh, you know, it's just not appropriate to go in and do research on another group of people for your own intellectual curiosity. This podcast is about health equity. And so based on your research and the work that you've done, I know you said specifically a huge interest in cancer education. What have been some inequities that you've seen among the Alaska Native population when it comes to cancer? You know, it varies throughout the state. Different regions are different. But in general, Alaska Native people are disproportionately burdened by both cancer incidence and mortality, are also disproportionately affected by a lack of access and availability to fruits and vegetables, are subjected to higher rates of tobacco use and smoking, as well as lower rates of physical activity. And all of those things, I think, need to be considered in context. Colonial forces have really restricted individuals' access to traditional foods and the physical activity that came with traditional ways of accessing those foods. A lot of the publicity around that will show images of foods that it considers to be healthy that are not accessible in rural Alaska. You know, so when I'm with a group of individuals and they're talking about, well, what does it mean to eat healthy? Well, in Alaska, that can look a little bit different. You know, we have all of this amazing food that exists right outside our front doors and a really strong whole diversity of traditions that connects individuals to the land and connects individuals to that food, both because it nourishes bodies and it nourishes souls. And so for people to go out and pick berries or to pick greens in the spring or to go hunting or to go fishing, those are all incredibly healthy foods for people to eat that have antioxidant properties that will help to prevent cancer because of the physical activity that people are getting as well as the nutrition that it provides, especially when compared with the food that's often available in small community stores, which has to be shelf stable just because of the route it takes to get there. So often is really high in saturated fat, sometimes depending on the age, there could be some trans fat in there as well. Maybe a lot of sugar, a lot of salt to preserve vegetables and fruits that, gosh, the stuff right out on the land doesn't have any of that. Are there people or organizations who are creating resources to help people learn what that looks like based on what they have at their fingertips? Yeah, there are all sorts of individuals that are doing work. If you Google store outside your door, there was a whole podcast series where they had chefs preparing traditional foods. Um, The Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium has done a lot of work in cancer education and creating culturally relevant cancer materials. I was lucky to be a part of their cancer education team for quite some time, and we created a lot of culturally relevant cancer education modules for Alaska's community health aides and practitioners, which are our primary care providers in rural Alaska, to try to get some of those messages out to those key stakeholders in those communities about what cancer is, what it looks like, how to prevent it, and what happens in treatment, and how to support cancer survivors as well. And so it was great to be a part of that team. There's certainly work that has 
happened and continues to happen, but there's always more to be done and there's always people that we haven't reached and different groups to focus on. And if you could think of three suggestions or solutions, if you had a magic wand that would help provide people with access to equitable health care, what would you do? What would be those changes that you would make in your community? Ooh, those are good questions. Maybe tribal sovereignty? Really allowing people to have power and control over their own lives and their own healthcare systems. In Alaska, there's a lot of strength and power in our tribal organizations, and that isn't true in a number of other tribal communities in the United States, so I feel grateful for that. But there's always more capacity, especially in rural communities, for tribes to have autonomy and control over their own decisions as a community. And then maybe cultural humility as well, and that's aimed more at the outside entities. So teachers, physicians, all of the different folks that are going to interact with individuals who are from historically marginalized populations. To be able to understand what your own culture is and looks like and realize that it's not the only one <laughs> and certainly not that it's a different culture and that doesn't make any particular culture the right one or the wrong one. It just happens to be that we were raised in one culture and other people are raised in different cultures and that's the way that goes to be able to be open to that. I'm Ashley Freeman and thanks for listening to this episode of Advocates in Action. If you haven't yet, please subscribe, review, and share this podcast. Your support is greatly appreciated. We enjoy connecting with our listeners, so please visit our website at npaf.org slash podcast for show notes, resources, and ways to engage with us on social media. Thanks for listening.